Philippians chapter 1 is where we are going to spend our time this morning. And our time will be briefer than usual this morning, but that's okay. I want to just focus on a couple short verses. We've celebrated three years, three years as a church. It's amazing. On the one hand, it seems like it's been 30 years. There's been so much that's happened. There has been so much ministry. We are a family and so much has happened in our church body over the last three years that it seems like it's been decades. On the other hand, it feels like just yesterday that we were launching this church. Um, Every song except for one that we sang this morning, uh, we sang when we launched our church. Um, It feels that way. The same excitement, the same contagious confidence, the same expectations, the same hopes, the same dreams, the same goals and aspirations. But what I want to do this morning is I want to recalibrate our thinking as to what we are hoping for and where our confidence lies. If I were to ask you, I know that you're excited about this local body. I know that you love. I know that. If I were to ask you, what informs your excitement for this church plant? What informs your expectations for the future? What informs your desires for your own soul? What informs your confidence in this church? What informs the, the bedrock where you can say in your heart of hearts, God is working and he will continue to work in this church. What is it that informs that? I want to ask the Apostle Paul that this morning. And I think he's going to explain what should inform our confidence and how that should play itself out in our church. So Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 1, just verses 1 through 8. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. It's only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affections of Christ Jesus. God, in our time this morning, show us the confidence that we should have confidence that we should have in Jesus. God, show us Christ and show us what that confidence produces in us. As we celebrate three years, God, I pray that we would expect and hope and anticipate and pray and work for three more, for 10 more, for 20 more, for 30 more, that we would pass the baton to the next generation that we even prayed for as we dedicated these precious children this morning. We'd pass that baton well to the next generation. God, give us confidence that's not based in emotionalism, 
Give us confidence that's based in the truth. Show us Jesus this morning, and may we savor him. We pray in his name. Amen. If you were to ask the Apostle Paul, what, where is your confidence? What do you hope in? Why do you have such great assurance that the church will succeed? Um, a lot of us would think he would go to, well, I, I'm a gifted speaker. Or I'm a gifted pastor. Or look at my track record. Look at all that I've accomplished. I've planted seven churches, and they're all still doing well. Maybe he'd go back to his great success. Maybe he'd go back to his abilities. Maybe he'd go back to other things. Where would he go? His fellow leaders that will take the baton? Where is his confidence? And where should our confidence be? He wouldn't say any of those things. He would say his confidence is in God alone. Verse 6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, will perfect it. He began it. If you were to ask Paul, did you start the church in Philippi? He would say, no, God did. Now, we know from Acts 16 that Paul was used by God to start the church. The first convert in Philippi to join the church of the Philippians, Lydia. Acts chapter 16, verse 14 says that God opened her heart to hear the words that Paul was saying. So Paul said something, but God was the one who opened her heart to hear the word and to be saved. Lydia gets saved. Then a demon-possessed girl. Uh, The demon is exercised out of her. She gets saved. She joins the church. Then the third convert that joins the the church, the third member. We have Lydia. We have a demon-possessed girl who is no longer demon-possessed. And we have a jailer who wants to commit suicide because there's been an earthquake and all of the prisoners have escaped. And Paul and Silas say, nope, we are still here. Don't kill yourself. And he says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe in Jesus Christ. Three converts right off the bat in Philippi, only because God opened their hearts to believe. Paul did the work, but God ultimately did what would be ultimately successful in their hearts. Three amazing converts that could not be more different. So Paul would not tell us, oh, I'm the one that that brings confidence. If I'm here, the church will go well. And if I'm not here, be afraid. In fact, he says, you don't need me. I'll establish leaders. I'll establish deacons and elders. And I'm out of here. And you guys will flourish as a church. That's why he says, God began the good work. God began. So where is our hope? Where's our assurance? Where's our confidence in this church plant? It's not in our leaders. It's not in anything that we do. It's in what God is doing through us and in us. If I could say it in a phrase, I would say this. Our confidence, just as Paul's was, must be in God's sovereign work through the proclamation of the gospel. Our confidence is in God's sovereign work through the proclamation of the gospel. We have work to do, but our work is not what will bring success. It's God's work. Once we understand that, it will produce in us amazing benefits. I just want to look at three very quickly this morning. Look at what God's sovereign work produces in this church in Philippi and produces in our church as well. Number one, um, God's sovereign work in uh, the proclamation of the gospel, through the proclamation of the gospel in the church produces participation. Number one, participation. You could put in parentheses fellowship. Some of your Bibles might say fellowship. Some might say partnership. The idea of mission. This is in verse 5. Paul says in verse 3, I thank my God in my remembrance of you, 
all of you always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. So everybody's in view in the church in Philippi, in view of all of your participation in verse 5 in the gospel. Participation in the gospel. I actually like the word fellowship better. You are fellowshipping together in the gospel. What does that mean? D.A. Carson says it best. The heart of true fellowship is self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. The heart of true fellowship, self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision, to a shared mission. So Christian fellowship or Christian participation, as Paul says in verse 5, is self-sacrificing conformity to the gospel. I'm going to give up everything that I have to focus on the gospel and to preach the gospel because the gospel has gotten a hold of me. The reception of the gospel is never a private matter. If you receive the gospel and you believe the gospel, you would not say, great, and I'm not talking to anybody about it. You never see that in the New Testament, ever. The reception of the gospel always brings about a transformed life that longs to see others receive the gospel and be transformed. And that brings us together for a shared mission. That's why Paul says, in view of your fellowship in the gospel, you were saved, you were saved, you were saved, you were saved. And since all of us got saved, we all have a shared mission to see others get saved. So all of the desires that we have, all of our worldly pursuits, they all go secondary, tertiary. They go away and we stare at Jesus and we say, okay, the mission is to make disciples because we have been made disciples. The gospel has gripped our hearts. Self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision. That is involved, self-sacrifice is involved in fellowship. And I just want to say over the last three years, there has been a lot of self-sacrifice that's happened. I, I know, I, we saw it even this morning, waking up earlier than we normally do to come here, to set up. How many chairs have we set up as a church if you think three years times 52 weeks times, I mean, once we get this whole place set up for chapel, maybe a couple hundred chairs, that's like over 30,000 chairs that we've set up as a church. You sacrifice a lot. You sacrifice time. You sacrifice energy. You sacrifice your body. You put your body on the line. Jeff Hawkins has thrown his back out on that speaker a couple times. He puts his body on the line. And you should see it. It's quite a fun picture to see him. I got it. Nope, I don't. And you hear a very faint, buddy. Um, we, we sacrifice much. You've sacrificed um, being in this building. Uh, many of you sacrificed being here to, Lord willing, be edified by the preaching of the word, by fellowship together in the body, by singing songs of praise to our God. You've sacrificed that by being in the room over there. Many of you have been spit up on. Several of you have been pooped on. You've sacrificed being in fellowship here with adults to go over there and love on the next generation. And I, I want to tell you, number one, before the Lord, we know that your work is not in vain. But number two, you sacrifice so that you will give the parents of those kids a break to rejuvenate, to refresh, to be in here without worrying about their children. That's huge. I can speak to that. That's huge. But number three, you're making a difference. Just last 
Sunday, we were um, eating at, the, at the, the dinner table. We had dinner, and, and I said to Chelsea, what's your favorite story in the Bible? And she said, I really like the story of, of Jesus healing the blind man. Okay, great. He does that a number of times in the Bible. That's a good one. If you, if you don't know what to say, that's a good one to say. So I just thought, yeah, fine. And I said, what did he do? And she said, he, he took him by the hand, and he picked up mud, and he spit on his eyes, and he put mud on his eyes. And then he told him to go to a, a river and to wash in the river. She got that part wrong, but that's okay. Go to wash in a river. And she, you should have seen her. Mud on the eyes and wash in the river. Just <laughs> bent down and, and, and clean. And then he could see. I don't know who was teaching that lesson. But I want to say thank you. You're teaching my daughter about Jesus. And there is nothing more important that can be done in the life of my daughter. There's nothing I want more for my children than to be taught Jesus. So you sacrifice. You've sacrificed money. We've taken up uh, special offerings for the purpose of sharing the gospel, for the purpose of missions. We, we um, support three missionaries, and we support them very well. We don't just support, you know, $100 a month. We are supporting them very well. Some of the missionaries that we support, we support three. Two of the missionaries that we support have said that we support them in greater uh, numbers than churches that have over 1,000 people in their congregation. I know that you sacrifice money. And we talked about this over the summer with the parable of the unrighteous steward of money. Where Jesus says, be like him. And, well, that's crazy. Be like an unrighteous manager of money. How does that work? And we talked about that. It works such that we would use our money to make friends for all of eternity. You're doing that. You sacrifice to love on people like the fire eyes. We've taken some offerings to help them out when they um, were struggling financially. Or to help them out even as they've been over in Michigan. Um, you sacrifice all over. Sacrifice happens all over this church. The only reason is because God's sovereign work in our lives has produced fellowship for a common goal, for a common mission, and that's to see lives transformed by the gospel. God's sovereign work produces participation, produces a fellowship, a mission together. Number two, God's sovereign work in our lives through the gospel produces confidence. This is verse six. I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will will perfect it. I am sure when God begins something, he completes it. Maybe you've come into this church over the last three years. You have to at least one time over the last three years have come into these doors, sat down in a chair, and just thought, what's the point? What's the point? Um, Maybe it's, what's the point with somebody around you? Maybe it's your neighbor. I've been sharing the gospel with them. What's the point? They don't love Jesus. They're never going to love Jesus. What's the point? What's the point of sharing the gospel? What's the point of setting up these chairs, hoping that people that we have invited to come to church, hoping that they would come and they haven't come? What's the point? Or maybe it's even for yourself. I have sat in this chair time and time again. I have long to be transformed into the image of Jesus, and I just don't see growth. I don't see change. What's the point? Why am I even coming? Is there any hope? Paul would say, oh, yes, there's hope. If God began the work in your life, he's going to finish it. He's going to complete it. So please, brothers and sisters, receive fresh 
confidence from God this morning that he who began the work in your life will complete it. And as we saw last week, there are other sheep who are not of this fold that God has called to himself and he's going to use you to bring them into the fold. Don't grow weary. No matter what you're struggling with, do not grow weary. God's sovereign work in our lives produces fellowship, produces confidence. Number three, God's sovereign activity in the gospel, in the proclamation of the gospel, produces affection. Verses 7 through 8. It's only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. And God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. The exact same way that Jesus loved that church, Paul loved that church. Meet Paul the pastor here. This is Paul the shepherd. We tend to think of him as somewhat bombastic in the way that he speaks. Here is a tender-hearted shepherd who says, I love you the same way Jesus loves you. I'm in prison. I might die. I'm confident that God's going to do work, and I love you. Why? Because of God's sovereign activity in the proclamation of the gospel. This is what God's sovereign work creates in us. Love, affection for one another. We're reconciled by the gospel, and because of that, we're made a family. We're brothers and sisters. Now, I know maybe for some of you, the idea of family doesn't sound like a breath of fresh air. Think about Thanksgiving and hanging out with family, and you go, wait, why did God compare that, the church, to family? Just, we just fight all the time. But God, God calls us a family because he has adopted us as sons and daughters. He loves us in a tender tender-hearted, affectionate way, and he asks and he calls us to do the same. And I believe that this church has that, that sense. I believe that this church has that feeling of family. I know we feel that in our men's group, and I know that you're feeling that in your women's group, where I've heard literally the, the phrase, this just is a breath of fresh air. It's not work to be here. I'm at peace. I'm at rest. I'm with family. And look at the way that God created this family. Look at the people, uh, Lydia, demon-possessed girl, and the jailer. Three people that could not have uh, fewer things in common. And, and God brings them together and says, you're family now. And they go, we love each other. Without the gospel, they would have hated each other. They would have looked down on each other. With the gospel, they love each other. That's what the gospel produces. That's what God's work in our lives produces. And that's the same thing. Look at this room. There are people in this room that love sports. They can't wait to go home and watch Sunday night football. There are people in this room that don't know what football is. There are people in this room that think football is the Dodgers losing to the Cubs last night. There there are people that hate sports. There are people in this room that love reading, that their idea of a good Sunday afternoon is either going home and reading a book or going to a bookstore and buying a book. They spend their treasures on books. There are people that haven't read books since junior high in this room. There there are people that even when they were in junior high, they didn't read the actual book. They read the cliff notes. We have people in this room that could not be further apart. And yet, because God has called us together because of the gospel, we love each other. The gospel is deeper than any human fleshly thing that would be our common goal, our common prize. And that affection is to be given to everyone who walks through these doors. Everyone who comes into this room should, should see, should sense the affection of the family of God. Now, can that affection diminish over the course of three years, over the course of a week? Absolutely. 
that affection can go down. And that's why Paul says, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray. He's, he's bringing back up that you all are partakers of grace with me. You all are people who God saved and are bringing to perfection. And I love you. He gives thanks for them. Have you ever tried doing that? Somebody that is in the family of God with you and you just don't really like? Give thanks for them. God saved them. God called them. God made them your brother or your sister. Give thanks. Be grateful for their partnership in the gospel and their service. It's like if you have an ingrown toenail in the body of Christ. If you have an ingrown toenail in your physical body, you don't go to the doctor and say, can you please cut my foot off? Right? I'm done. Ingrown toenail. Nothing can be done. Just amputate my foot. Sometimes we practically do that in church with the body of Christ. Some of you sometimes are ingrown toenails. Let's be honest. But we don't, as a church family, we don't, as a church body, say, amputate, get them out of here. We're done. We say, let's work. Let's take away the pressures. Let's take away what's happening here. and Let's bring you back to health. Let's bring you back to health. What are you looking for in this church to give you confidence? What are you looking for in this church? If you have a desert and a vulture flies over the desert, a vulture will find a dead body, a dead carcass. Why? Because that's what the vulture is looking for. If you're in a desert and you have a little hummingbird that's flying by, that hummingbird will find a flower. Why? Because that's what that hummingbird is looking for. I think too often we walk through these doors looking for things to be ticked off at looking for things to just be annoyed by instead of looking for ways that God is working through the gospel. Um, We're going to read that in the cross-centered life, seeing the evidence of grace in our own lives and then seeing that in others' lives, looking externally for the good and not looking for the bad. So my question is, what are you looking for in this church? What are you looking for? What excites you about this church? Where is your confidence? Where is your hope? Where is your joy? If it's in the sovereign work of God through the proclamation of the gospel, then I don't think our confidence or our our excitement or our hope, our expectations, I don't think they will ever go away. Our joy will never fade. And we're going to be on the right of our life in this adventure of church planting. God's sovereign work in our lives produces participation in the gospel, confidence in the gospel, and affections because of the gospel. And as I read these verses, and I look out at this church, I can't help but, but think that you all bear a striking, striking resemblance to the church in Philippi. I read these verses, I look at you, and I go, oh, I totally get why Paul's saying what he's saying. That totally makes sense. I see the sacrifice, I see the confidence I see the mission together. I see the unity and the peace. I know why Paul felt the way he felt about this church. And I want to tell you, I feel that way about this church. You all are encouragement to my soul because of the gospel. We started a church. By God's grace, we started a church three years ago. Three years ago, We've seen people repent and place their trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. People have been ushered from hell to heaven because of this church and God using it. We've seen disciples be made. We've seen people be baptized. So much life has been lived together in this church. 
We've lost a lot of people as we went through our second year, which is totally what happens in church plants. And then we gained some more traction as we exited. We're, if everybody shows up, we've practically doubled in size since the day that we launched. We have celebrated new life. We've celebrated birth together, a new generation being ushered into our church family. We've celebrated the homegoing of saints who now get to be with Jesus and have finished their race. We've seen life. We've seen death. We've celebrated um, leaders being made and a culture of leadership development happening in our church such that whoever's going to be in this pulpit is going to be here with excellence to proclaim the word of God, to be taught, to be trained, and ultimately to be sent out to do this with other churches, maybe even a church plant from us one day, Lord willing. Who knows what this next year is going to hold? Maybe a, a new pastor who can take over the music. Maybe a, a new church facility that we could call our home. We could use not just Sunday mornings, but every day of the week. Who knows what, what's going to be happening? God knows. And I am just so excited to be on mission with him. But through all we've been through, that first day will be as vivid to me. That first day that we launched will be as vivid to me as I believe the first day of the church in Philippi was as vivid to Paul. He remembers. I remember that day. And I remember that day. And I don't ever want to forget the mission that we've been sent, sent by God to be on. That mission that God has given to us to make disciples. That task is unfinished. And we need to be ever vigilant to go out and make disciples. By God's grace, we will continue to do the work that he has called us to do until we finally see him face to face. Amen? God, thank you so much for the church. Thank you so much for your grace that has called us, that has given us affections for one another, that has given us a fellowship in the gospel, that has given us a love and a confidence for your word and for your work. And I pray now as we remember that first day that we launched and remember the point why we launched as a church, it is so that the unfinished task would drive us to our knees and would bring us to a place where we would say, God, we need your help to make disciples. Don't ever let us be complacent. Even now, God, I pray that you would renew in us a desire to see God work, to see you work in this church and around this community in such a way that people would be saved, sanctified, and one day glorified, all because of your work through the proclamation of the gospel. Make us faithful. We pray for your glory in your name. And all God's people said, Amen.